You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. Today we're talking, of course, about Nevada and South Carolina, about Trump and Cruz and Rubio, about Bernie and Hillary. Coming up, we'll speak with Julianne Hing in Nevada, and later in this hour, we'll have something completely different, because politics isn't everything. A.O. Scott, the film critic for The New York Times, will talk about art pleasure, beauty, and truth. No kidding. Well, first up today, the Republicans. It's been a historic week in the history of the Republican Party as Donald Trump takes the lead in what seems to be an irresistible race that's going to make him their candidate. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. He's, of course, national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His new book is The S-Word, A Short History of an American Tradition, Socialism. And he also wrote Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. John Nichols, welcome back. It is a great pleasure to be with you, John. So let's review Tuesday in the Nevada Republican caucuses, Trump 46, Rubio 24, Cruz 21, uh, I was one of those people who'd been saying Trump has a ceiling around 33. I guess I was wrong. Yes, you were wrong. But there's comfort, John, in the fact that everyone has been wrong about Trump at every turn. In every presidential race you've ever looked at, you will see frontrunners as the race goes on, and if they're headed toward the nomination, get better and better numbers. I mean, they go up. And so I don't think we should be at all surprised if Trump who is clearly the Republican frontrunner at this point, begins to post numbers well into the 40s and even eventually, and I think possibly as soon as Super Tuesday, in some states getting toward the 50s. Of course, everyone has been assuming for months that Trump will burn himself out or blow himself up. Now the question has changed. If he's going to be stopped, who would do it? How would that happen? Right now, there's virtually no campaign against him in the Republican Party. Rubio and Cruz are knocking each other out to see who's going to be number two. Uh, is Trump stoppable at this point? Well, yeah. I mean, look, we're very, very early in the process. This is true on the Democratic side and the Republican side. And so those who want to write the obituary for the process um, are getting ahead of themselves. When you still have you know, 46, 47 states, as well as District of Columbia and all sorts of other places to vote, you know, things can, things can potentially take twists and turns. Uh, 
here's a couple things that are important to understand. What happened in Nevada was devastating for Cruz because Cruz really needed a strong second-place finish there. He worked very, very hard. He had the endorsement of the state attorney general and a lot of, you know, political right-wing establishment behind him. And it just didn't work. He was, you know, he was clearly in third place. And so that weakens his claim to be a pure conservative alternative to Trump. Rubio, uh, he desperately needs to finish first someplace because you understand this guy has, you know, he's, he's always, you know, second or third. Rubio is a very untested national candidate. He has shown a lot of evidence of being quite inept at kind of closing the deal. Yeah. He's clearly a good public speaker, but when it gets to the, the reality of doing it, he doesn't seem to be very good at it. And so what this all means is that over on the edge, John Kasich is still staying in this race, the Ohio governor, hoping against hope that this thing can stay muddled enough to get into the Midwestern states, um, where there are, frankly, somewhat more moderate Republicans, not not much more, uh, very, very conservative, actually, but they call themselves moderates for, you know, reasons of, for evidence of how extreme our politics has become. And uh, he is hoping that he can get to some of those states that the establishment will see that Cruz is clearly unacceptable, that Rubio just can't get his act together, and that it might be one last burst of big spending, big energy on his behalf, but you understand what we're talking about, John? We're talking about, like, wild scenarios. This is like, this is like you becoming a rock star, <laughs> which I know is possible. No, it's, that's, but, no but I don't it, think so. It's still something we have to really, you know, we have to kind of wrap our heads around it's it. It's tough. And my gut instinct is that um, just as you will probably continue with your professorial duties, I think that Donald Trump's challengers will continue in their other lines of employment. We also need, of course, to talk about the Democrats. Uh, last Saturday, it seems like ancient history now, uh, Hillary did carry the Nevada Democratic caucuses 53 to 48. The, her supporters were very excited that she won. But, you know, that means the race was decided by 3% of the caucusers. It took Hillary the entire Democratic Party establishment, all the money, power, influence, and connections of her 20-plus years in politics to to beat a 74-year-old Jewish socialist from Vermont who had none of the power, machinery, or network. I think if you're a Hillary supporter, you have to be worried about that, don't you? Yes, and and they are worried. There's no doubt. Uh, look, here's the the dynamic that we're in. Uh, and it is a real kind of crisis of our media. Our media now is the most forgetful media in American history. It forgets what was reality a week ago, right? And so without that sense of, with any sense of memory, it's sort of the, our, our major media, this is, you know, network television and the major daily newspapers become the equivalent of social media. They live in the moment. And so... If a candidate comes from dramatically far behind, closes a massive gap, begins to show real evidence of, you know, attracting votes from, from folks that people didn't expect that candidate to attract votes from, uh, it's still written off as a loss. And that's what happened to Sanders in, in Nevada. He came from very, very far behind in very short order. But because there had been a couple of polls that had showed it closer, uh, Whatever he accomplished was written off as, you know, forgettable. 
he's being treated at this point as if he was the you know a, a exact equal to Clinton. You know, a candidate who's you know right where she's at politically, uh, right? You know, with all the connections and everything. And when he loses, then his losses are are seen as you know dramatic setbacks. So it's a little unfair to him. However, and this is important, Hillary Clinton is evolving as a candidate. And this is an important thing to keep an eye on. Yeah. Don't, don't just blame the media and don't just blame the political elites. Recognize that this is one of Hillary Clinton's strengths. She looks at the moment she's in, recognizes where the dynamic is, moves to it, and embraces the language and, and even the messages. And I know that there's a lot of folks who like to say, oh, well, I'm not sure, you know, she seems to be late to the game, or as Sanders has said, you know, she seems to be borrowing his lines. Well, I, I, I hate to tell people this, but that's what happens in politics, right? Winning candidates often, you know, gather ideas, vision, messages, and even language from their opponents. That's, that's part of how you put together a candidacy for a fall race. So, um, I think that what Clinton is doing is a classic model of evolving a candidacy, making her message far more progressive than when she began. And I, I think there is some evidence that it's working. Let us imagine, thought experiment, a Trump versus Clinton campaign in a year defined by an anti-establishment ethos uh, you have a frightening piece at thenation.com, President Donald J. Trump, it could happen. What, how does that scenario go? Sure, it's, it's not hard. When I talk to a lot of different folks, members of Congress from industrialized states, uh, former presidential candidates like Ralph Nader and Jesse Jackson, leaders of advocacy groups like Elise Hoek from NARAL and uh, Roseanne DeMauro from and National Nurses United, all these different folks, coming from very different perspectives, remember. People who, some of whom are uh, big advocates for uh, Hillary Clinton, some of whom are big advocates for Bernie Sanders. What they, what they all recognize from being very close to this process is that if he is nominated by the Republicans in Cleveland this summer, what I heard from an awful lot of folks is you can already see in his messaging where he's going to go. And it is going to be toward a intensive appeal to blue-collar voters, uh, particularly in swing states like Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, potentially Wisconsin, and some others. And the message will be he's opposed to these free trade deals, which people in those states really hate. Our national media doesn't begin to understand how much opposition there is to free trade on the current model in states like Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Indiana. And also, combined with that, a promise, fantastical as it may be, coming from him, that somehow he will bring back millions of jobs that have already been outsourced and offshored. And that combination of a, a clear assault on trade policy and a promise to really you know, spike industrial employment and just employment in general is going to have an appeal. Let me add... Donald Trump has also made it clear he opposes cuts to Medicare and Social Security. He's talked about universal health coverage. He's kind of defended Planned Parenthood. Uh, he wants to raise taxes on the hedge fund guys. And he's been winning in the Republican primaries with, with that program. Of course, he's also an ugly racist, a vicious nativist, a defender of torture. 
But uh, in a lot of ways, he's got a lot of bedrock Democratic uh, positions. And I don't think Hillary has a very good defense on the, uh, the history of America's trade deals. One of the things that I think is important, and it came, came back to me again and again in talking to folks uh, who are on different sides of, of the Democratic race, but who are really recognizing where, where this is headed. And that is that we should be very, very careful about the concept that the only way to counter Trump is with a, a populism that is better than his. You know, just a, our populism versus your populism thing. There's got to be more to it. And the Democratic message has to get a lot smarter very, very fast. What I would suggest to you is that Sanders has clearly connected with an awfully lot of people by going deep on economics. His speeches are an hour, an hour and a half long. They are, they, he does address a host of issues, but that core economic message uh, is, is deep. It goes, it goes in much further and talks about the pathologies, the crises, the challenges of income inequality, wage stagnation, bad trade policy, etc. That's got to be a part of whoever the Democratic nominee is in the fall. It cannot, you cannot not have that deep discussion, because that's where people, people are interested in that. By the same token, something that Clinton has done that is, I think, very wise, is she has begun, I don't think she's fully realized on this, but she has begun to talk about those economic issues in relation to a lot of other issues, and trying to make those connections, trying to do what some people refer to as an intersectionality, recognizing yeah. that people come at things from a lot of different places. Whoever the nominee is has to be economically populist and trustworthy on that. They have to be believable on it. But they also have to be very, very good at mobilizing people of color, women, LGBT community, and all sorts of folks who you know, will certainly vote on their economic interests, but will also have other issues of deep concern. You know, Ralph Nader said to me that he doesn't think the Democrats are, are at all prepared for what's coming at them. And I think that's true. I think the Democrats have to pause, think less about candidates per se, less about, you know, this back and forth they've got going now, and more about what that, what that core message will be going into a, a fall race. If the opponent's Donald Trump, it has to be a very smart and very bold, but also very deep message. And, uh, and I think that it's even then, in some of these states, uh, it won't come easy. People need to, I just would suggest, people need to wake up to the reality that just as everybody wrote Trump off as a Republican candidate, and he went and beat, you know, the, the Karl Roves and all the establishment types, even if Rove wasn't directly involved, um, his potential to upend and unsettle and up, potentially upset uh, the Democratic masterminds and all the Democratic strategists should not be ruled out. You know, to, to simply assume that he is the weakest candidate uh, does not look at what has happened so far, and it also doesn't look at the, the subtle messaging that he is delivering already and that one presumes he would dramatically amplify as he tries to reach out to folks that we once referred to as Reagan Democrats. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. A pleasure.
Nevada has been a fascinating place to see American politics at work. For that, we turn to our reporter in Nevada, Julianne Hing. She's covering the 2016 elections for the nation from the perspective of immigrant communities. She's also written about immigration, education, and police accountability for color lines. We reached her today in Las Vegas. Julianne Hing, welcome back. Thanks for having me. The Republicans on Tuesday in Nevada, just to review, Trump, 46 percent, Rubio, around 24 percent, Cruz in third with 21 percent. I understand you went to rallies for each of these. That makes for a heck of a week. Let's start with the Trump rally. What was it like to go to a Trump rally? Well, John, I mean, I, like I'm sure many of your listeners, have been keeping up with the coverage of Donald Trump um, for months. I've seen him on TV, on loop, on a seemingly endless loop. And yet there's nothing quite like seeing it, witnessing it all in person. It was surreal. There was a Donald Trump impersonator on the floor of the South Point Arena making the rounds. People were coming up to him and uh, asking for photos with him. I learned that he's actually a fixture on the Las Vegas Strip um, and, uh, and you know, ha- has been for years. But uh, imagine... You know what? What a time to to be to be a Donald Trump impersonator. <laughs> the the arena was large. It had a stated seating capacity of four thousand six hundred. Which actually, interestingly enough, the Trump warm up folks said that they had ab- about eight thousand people in the crowd. It's it's unclear how many people actually were there, but. Um, but there were three protesters who who interrupted. Donald Trump's speech and got thrown out. And Donald Trump, who, you know, as many people will know by now who are familiar with his speeches, he doesn't really use notes. He doesn't have a teleprompter. It's this stream of consciousness uh, ramble that's that's high on the one-liners and vague on any, you know, policy specifics. Um, but one thing he said after the second or third interruption from a protester, he said, I love protesters. I love protesters because that's the only way the cameras, and he points to, you know, the reporters in the press pit where I was sitting, that's the only way the cameras will turn and show the crowds. Um, and and then he said, um, you know, because these cameramen, these, these reporters have been given strict instructions never to show the crowd. And then he sort of whips whips this this arena into a frenzy and they all turn around to the reporters in the press pit and start booing us. Um, it was just masterful manipulation by Donald Trump. Another thing that really struck me was as a reporter who's um, covered immigration for years, I happened to be working on a story, you know, in the hour and a half lead up to Donald Trump actually appearing. And I looked up from my computer and uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, the notorious sheriff from Maricopa County in Arizona, happened to walk by. He was he introduced Donald Trump and uh, gave him a ring endorsement and said that um, four past presidential candidates had actually visited Joe Arp, his, his, his tent cities in Arizona, but all of them had actually lost. Um, and then he's, and then Joe Opio said that he had been trying to get Hillary Clinton down there, you know, hoping that might affect her, her prospects, but that she'd so far declined. And uh, you also went to a Ted Cruz rally. How did that compare with the Donald Trump rally? 
I did go to a Ted Cruz rally. Um, so this was his one of his only Las Vegas events, and it was in a very wealthy part of Las Vegas called Summerlin. Um, I mean, I don't know that I would call it a rally so much as something assembly, uh, something resembling more of a school assembly. You know, uh, for example, Bernie Sanders's or uh, Hillary Clinton's rallies. You know, it's standing room only. There, there are generally no seats unless you're sitting on the risers. You know, to to form the backdrop behind the candidate. But at Ted Cruz's rally, everyone got a seat. Um, there, everyone. It was in the auditor a gym auditorium of YMCA. It was very, very neat and orderly. Um, and and one thing too that that's different about Republican uh, presidential rallies is that they always start with generally a prayer, the Star Spangled Banner, the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, that is one thing that Democrats don't do at their rallies. Okay, and didn't Ted Cruz have some entertainment also? He did. He did. Uh, there was a Christian pop star um, whose name is actually escaping me at the moment, who sang the Star Spangled Banner and um, and a very catchy Christian pop song um, and, and got the got the crowd all fired up before introducing Glenn Beck, um, who who made it clear at the end of what turned out to be like a 25 minute long speech that he was killing time uh, waiting for Ted Cruz to to show up. Um, but Glenn Beck gave a rambling, very, very long and at times hard to follow, uh, speech about George Washington, the articles of confederation, uh, George Washington's desire for uh, a nap. Um, but, but, but. Did you say, hold on, did you say George Washington's desire for a nap? Correct. Before the voice of God, um, which Glenn Beck offered, you know, offered us a, a taste of, um, exhorted George Washington to get himself to Philadelphia because greatness was waiting there for him. And then, and then, you know, Glenn Beck also worked in a reference to George Washington's copy of Don Quixote, which he actually held up in front of the crowd. Um, at that point, at that point, I had lost this, the, the threads of the story, and, and it seemed that the, the, the rest of the audience had to. Um, but, you know, the, the crowd was very, very enthusiastic about, about Ted Cruz when he came out and um, his promise to um, return to the Constitution, his promise to destroy ISIS, his promise to um, to treat suspected terrorists as harshly as possible. He, he, got, he, he got a lot of support. And, and also, I think, is something that's interesting to note. You know, I, I think many people would expect that for, for a candidate like Ted Cruz, his support would be uh, overwhelmingly older and white, and that it was, but there were people of color. There were voters of color. There were Latino voters. There were Asian American voters, and there were black voters in the crowd there who wanted to hear, who took time out of their day. It was a, about a three-hour-long commitment um, on a Monday morning to, to hear Ted Cruz speak. And then, of course, Marco Rubio, who made a big deal about having spent his formative years uh, in Nevada uh, as a Mormon and uh, listening, I, I believe, to Africa Bombata. Did Marco Rubio talk about his, uh, his Nevada years when, at his rally? 
He did. He did. I mean, he said one thing that I identified with after having spent just a few days here. Marco Rubio talked about arriving in Las Vegas as a child and looking never, you know, never having seen mountains so so high and thinking that they were cardboard cutouts and wondering why his skin was so dry. That that that's one thing that that resonated with me. But Marco Rubio's team had built this event. You know, there there were there were large signs behind Marco Rubio. Um, that said, Nevada is Marco is Marco country is Marco Rubio country. You know, and, and he really was supposed to. It was supposed to be a homecoming of sorts. And in fact, many of Marco Rubio's relatives were in the crowd cheering him on. Uh, Marco Rubio gave a a rousing speech. You know, I, I talked to to several folks in the audience who were repulsed by Donald Trump. Um, more than more than a few people called Donald Trump a clown and said that this election season had proved to be a three ring circus and Donald Trump was in his own ring. And more than a few people that I talked to said that they were supporting Marco Rubio because Jeb Bush had recently dropped out in the wake of his bruising loss in South Carolina. Unfortunately, that new support and that rush of endorsements that Marco Rubio got in the last days wasn't, you know, wasn't enough to push him over the edge. Of course, you know, Donald Trump was expected to do well in Nevada, um, but the fact that Mark, neither Marco Rubio nor Ted Cruz did much better is um, probably very troubling for their campaigns, you know, as, as we move towards Super Tuesday. Julianne Hing, reader at The Nation magazine, thenation.com. Julianne, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Now it's time for something completely different. All of life is not Bernie and Hillary and Donald Trump. We also have the movies, and for that, we have A.O. Scott. He's chief film critic at The New York Times, his first bylines were at The Nation. He's also a distinguished professor of film criticism at Wesleyan University. And now he's got a book out. It's called Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. Tony Scott, welcome. Great to be here, John. Well, one of your points in this book is that today uh, everybody is a, a, a critic Amazon in particularly has famously democratized criticism in the book world. Anybody can post a review there. I looked up the rating and reviews of your book on Amazon <laughs> this morning. There, at this point, you have one review yeah. from a guy who calls himself Howie San. He's reviewed nine other books, so he, he does this. And he says your book is, quote, absolutely brilliant and sparkling with abundant common sense, close quote. What do you think about Amazon reviews? Well, Howie San is clearly a genius um, <laughs> and uh, one of the most important critical voices in, in the world today. But I, I think that as as a as a professional critic, as someone who who, who tries to do this for a living, um, I've had mixed feelings about uh, about this democratization. Um, but I, I I would say, in the end, I'm more for it than against it because I I do think that criticism for me is a, a fundamentally democratic undertaking. It's about a conversation that we're all having uh, about what matters about what we like, um, what has value. And it only works in a way if we're, all, if we're all in it together and we're all thinking about it together. That doesn't mean that every opinion is, is equally valid um, or, or equally cogent or, or persuasive. Um, and part of what I'm arguing in this book is that, that people need to think harder and write better and expect, express themselves more clearly um, 
and 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 argue um, with with as much clarity and intelligence as, and insight as they can. But I think it's it's great to have all of the attempts of that coming from so many different places um, and not concentrated uh, in um, just among sort of authorities who are who are the who are the the professionals, the experts. Of course, there's one big difference. There's many differences between you and the reviewers at Amazon, but maybe the biggest is that Howie San is not paid for this. Right, and and I think that in some ways the problem that I have with with uh, the kind of criticism that proliferates on on these uh, websites and and social media um, is less an issue with the quality of the criticism than it is in a way a labor issue <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that that you know in in the digital economy uh, we can't fool ourselves. Um, too much about who we're working for. You know, when when we're posting on Facebook, we're we're working on we're working for Facebook. I mean, I'm on Twitter a lot, um, and you know, I'm generating content for Twitter, even though the New York Times is paying my salary for what I write for the New York Times. So, so I think that there's an important question, um, and a question that's only beginning to be really thought about um, and 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 argued about in public about the value of intellectual labor, which criticism certainly is, no matter who's doing it. And and how um, that value is 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 expressed, but I think at the same time, you know, the 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 difference between amateurs and and professionals is is often narrower than 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 we think, you know. And and that yes, I I I get paid to do it, and the, the other difference is that I have to do it, you know. I I have I can't before I was a professional critic, I thought and expressed myself critically about a lot of movies, but I only ever saw the movies that I wanted to go see. <laughs> Well, not everyone agrees with uh, uh, Howie Sand that you are absolutely brilliant. Uh, one reader of your reviews in the paper uh, tweeted, quote, A.O. Scott needs a new job. Let's help him find one, one that he can actually do, close quote. I think you remember this one. Yes. I won't say that that tweet inspired this book. I, I was already starting to work on it, but it certainly – Kind of galvanized me and 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 uh, helped me to think about what I was doing and what the job actually is. And that was, of course, the the tweeter in that question, the critic, the critic of the critic was Samuel L. Jackson, the um, the star of a great many movies. In this case, uh, the star of or one of the stars of the Avengers, um, and he was not happy with uh, with my review of it and and called into question um, my competence, uh, but. Got me thinking about uh, well, what is this job? How do you actually do it? A lot of people think critics are are failed artists. Uh, they see critics as envious and resentful. Susan Sontag, for example, said, "Quote: Interpretation is the revenge of the intellect upon art. To interpret is to impoverish." Close quote. So. This sort of makes criticism uh, like a crime, and and then you are a criminal. <laughs> yes, yeah, she goes on in that amazing uh, essay against interpretation, which is one of my favorite anti-critical critical um, pieces of writing that I that I go back and read um, at, at at least once a year. She goes on to say that that you know criticism that the proliferation of interpretation is like the fumes of from of of pollution from cars <laughs> choking the planet and killing all <laughs> all living things. It's it's. It's very dramatic, and of course, it, it's coming from somebody in that case who's one of the most brilliant and and um, and prolific critics and interpreters of of mm-hmm. art. So mm-hmm. there's a way that that criticism is in some ways divided against itself. But I think that um, 
what what I say sort of in 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 response to that is that Sontag talks in that essay also about the defense of art and the importance of the defense of art, of defending art um, from whatever is trying to, to devalue it or attack it or, or trivialize it or erase it. And for me, criticism just is the name for the defense of art and that criticism arises out of an impulse that is first of all um, – engaged with and passionate about whatever whatever the art in question is, but that is also itself creative, is is part of the same impulse that that leads us to make things, to tell stories, to to draw pictures, um, to to make music, um, to create representations. The the same impulse that drives us to do that is what makes us want to interpret and and judge and assign meaning and understand the value of these things. But but why do you have to intellectualize about movies. Why can't you just enjoy them? <laughs> for me, and, and I don't think only for me, for me thinking about movies um, or books or music or anything that gives me pleasure or entertains me, thinking is part of the enjoyment. It's not the opposite of the enjoyment. It's, it's the extension of the enjoyment. And I think a lot of people uh, go and, and, and read criticism, read reviews. People often you know, say that they like to read reviews after they've seen the movie. Um, Partly, I think to to keep it going, to keep yeah. the, the 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 fun yeah. of thinking about this and and figuring out well, why did I like that? Why didn't I like that? You know, what 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 was so moving or so frustrating, um, or or how is it that you know I love this and the person I was sitting next to you know hated it and fell asleep? All of that, all of that discussion, all of that thought is 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 for me really integral to to the pleasure and also the importance of these experiences. So you say another word for criticism is thinking. That's not really a very bold position. Is there anybody who's against thinking? I don't know how much of the political um, stuff that's going on in this country you've been following. But I would say there, there's, there's certainly uh, a very strong and powerful um, tendency, may not even be the word, kind of um, anti-intellectual movement in this, in this country that, that, that pops up every now and then. I think right now um, – one party is 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 working very hard to 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 persuade people to think as little as possible and to capitalize on 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 the resistance to thought or the suspicion of of thought i don't want to get too political or too partisan ab ab about this but but i do think that that you know we 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 have, we have had um a rather remarkable intellectual in the in the white house for the last seven and a half years and i think a lot of the hostility that's come against him it has many many sources um but i think one of those sources is the fact that he's so he's so thoughtful and and thinking and the 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 ability to embrace contradictory ideas to look for nuances and complexities to not simplify to not always go for the 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 emotional um payoff is something that is often embattled and beleaguered um, in in our culture, and and I've tried to in this book in a very different and and very non political in a way context to to make a stand for that to 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 say well let's not you know let's not be stupid. Well, what about Shakun uh, Asong Gu? As my cousin used to say, everyone to his own Gu. <laughs> well, that's the great – one of the great paradoxes. Of course, we all have our own Gu. Um, and, <laughs> yes. you know, it's supposed to be, uh, you know, something that there's no accounting for and there's no argument. You can't – you like this, I like that. What is fascinating to me and, and, and there's a, a kind of lengthy and maybe too densely philosophical discussion of this in the book because I was so fascinated by it is that – we say, well, we, we, we don't argue about it. We can't argue about it. But we argue about it all the time. We do nothing but argue about it. So if, if, if you liked a movie that I didn't like, um, it's 
it's unlikely that we'll just leave it at that. Say, oh, you didn't like that. I like that. Oh, you know, what are you, crazy? That was terrible. <laughs> no, that was great. Come on. That's where, where the critical impulse begins. And we can't, even though we know this, that we're all different, we all have our own tastes, our own responses, um, they're all equally valid. We're, we'll all just kind of affirm each other and, and, and like each other's Facebook postings or whatever we're doing. We don't follow that. And it's good that we don't follow it. Do you remember what the critic said about Moby Dick when it was first published? <laughs> yes, one of my favorite cases of uh, of critics being wrong. Um, Moby Dick was was he thought his great masterpiece. He'd been reading Shakespeare, he'd been reading Coleridge. He'd, he'd reinvented his whole prose style. All of his great philosophical ideas were going to get into this story um, about a whale voyage. And uh, the reviewers were like, "What are you doing, man? This is like this is nine hundred pages and and." It's just all this weird stuff about whales and all this strange philosophical mumbo-jumbo and they panned it. And, and, and surely it's <laughs> occurred to you that perhaps you are more like the critics of Moby Dick than like Herman Melville. You can be. And that is in a way part, part of the critic's job is to be wrong because you're, you're, you're coming in very early. You know, I, I review these movies. The review is published the day the movie opens. And in some ways, the movie isn't even finished then because it will only be completed um, when it reaches the audience and the audience over time, sometimes over years and decades, figures out what to do with it. So my early summary judgment um, is almost guaranteed to be mistaken in, in, in some way. And I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the history of changing taste, by the way that Moby Dick you know, was, was, was panned and then was forgotten. And nobody – for the rest of the 19th century and well into the 20th century, nobody had heard of it. Nobody had read it. Um, you couldn't – you could find it apparently in the, in the Yale library in like in the, in, the, in the fisheries and oceanography <laughs> section. And then suddenly a bunch of critics, it was, you know, came along and, and found this and said, hey, wait a minute. This is the, this is the central work of, of, of the American imagination. Those were the good critics. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you never know at the moment which one you are. So I uh, your, your, the subtitle of your book uh, mentions beauty and truth. You are a distinguished professor at a major uh, institution of higher education. So you know these are fighting words in academia. <laughs> well, I, I have a, a, a wonderful uh, – a wonderful little gig at at, at Wesleyan. Um, as I mean, I, I think of myself less as a distinguished professor than a, as a kind of an imaginary professor, a make believe <laughs> okay. professor. Um, but because I I get to uh, to to try to um, to come back to beauty and truth in a way to to have I, I teach a class in in film writing that's basically a writing class and. Mm-hmm. Um, the the students I have who are who are are wonderful. They're junior and senior, mostly film majors, so they know a lot about movies. They're they're very sophisticated in in the in the ways of academia um, and in writing in the current academic academic idiom. And I get to subvert that a little bit. I get to to um, to to try to redirect their energies. A little so they bit they know, they've heard truth. that 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 truth is a bourgeois illusion. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, and also that everybody you know, and that it's that it's contingent and variable and all of these things and is, is, is constructed like everything else. Um, but – and I don't not believe that necessarily but I still believe that it's worth thinking about. Um, and the uh, – you know, the, the, that subtitle is a little tongue-in-cheek, how to think about um, art, pleasure, beauty and truth. Um, but, it, but it's not entirely tongue-in-cheek because I think whether 
one of the, the arguments of this book is however much we try to get away from those things, from, from, from those ideas, however much we try to, um, to subordinate them to our ideas about, about politics or morality or religion or virtue or any of these things um, or to get rid of them altogether, they come back. They come back to us whether we want them or not because we will be surprised by it. We will find – we will feel that something is beautiful. We will think that something is, is, is true and we will have to deal with those thoughts. Okay. Karl Marx. We, of course, we need to end with Karl Marx here. In Marx's 1844 manuscripts, he described his utopia where everybody could be a hunter in the morning, a fisherman in the afternoon, and criticize after dinner without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, or critic. His idea was that nobody should spend their whole life working in a factory and nobody should spend their whole life watching movies and writing yeah. about them. What do you think about that? Well, I have a, a similar passage in a way um, which is almost contemporaneous with that, which comes from Emerson's American Scholar, um, about exactly that division of labor, you know, that we should be, you know, man working um, or man thinking or man creating rather than, you know, an artist or, or, or a farmer um, or whatever. And there, there's an, another um, – piece of writing from the 19th century that's very important to me too, which is Oscar Wilde's The Soul of Man Under Socialism, which is about how in in his version of that utopia, um, everyone will be artist and, and, and critic because our powers will be freed, um, our imaginations will be will be freed. And and for me that that those those utopian ideas are very, very resonant. And 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 I come back to them in in the book. The idea that it, there is something in a way unnatural or alienated about the fact that we have critics rather than that everybody at some point in, in, in the day has the leisure and, and the creative time um, to, to criticize. So I, I like to think that, that my own book is, is, is somewhat along that utopian line, that it's not a defense of my own job and my own professional prerogatives, but an invitation uh, to, to everybody to try to cultivate these powers within themselves. A.O. Scott, his book is Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. Tony, thanks for coming in today. It's been a pleasure. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.